Welcome, everyone. It is nice to see all of your smiling faces. And uh, we set up tables because we thought that might be easier for note-taking and all of that. Um, Glad to see so many of you got the book. That is fantastic. Uh, For those of you that may be watching, we are using Turning Points by Mark Knoll. Um, And it is uh, a really, really good book, and it's very helpful uh, in what we are doing. Obviously, we are using it as our textbook in essence. Um, And what you've got in front of you is somewhat of an outline. Um, There's some information in there from some other sources, but it's almost uh, entirely out of Mark Knoll's book. So um, let's go ahead, excuse me, let's go ahead and pray and Um, we will get started. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you are here. God, we thank you that the study of church history is not an exercise in dryness or an exercise in futility. It is something that can help us to understand how we got where we are and to understand in particular the biblical truths that span all of the history of the church and how they were, how we came to understand what we've come to understand. So Lord, I pray you would help me communicate. I pray you would give us ears to hear and that we would be encouraged and we would be strengthened by your spirit through this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. So right off the bat, I'd like to point out something really important And that is, I spelled Nicaea wrong at the top of your uh, paper. That was a complete accident. Uh, I was, uh, it's a typo. So anyway, Nicaea is not spelled that way. It is spelled N-I-C-E-A. So that is is my fault. Um, Everybody should have uh, some pins and uh, everything at your table. And if you need anything, I think that really will cover it for for everybody. So, all right. Praise the Lord. So, this is turning point number two, according to uh, Mark Knoll, again, uh, the uh, 14 things that he viewed as the most consequential turning points in church history. Uh, Just so you know, we are skipping over all kinds of stuff uh, to get to the Council of Nicaea. But the Council of Nicaea is, is so important because it is of all the church councils that happened throughout history, <clears throat> this is one you've probably heard of. Um, you've heard the phrase, well, they did that at the Council of Nicaea, or they decided that at the Council of Nicaea. Everything went wrong at the Council of Nicaea. There's a hundred different expressions out there um, in reference to the Council of Nicaea, and I, I'm It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's not. About 99.9% of them are wrong. When you study what the Council of Nicaea was actually about, it's almost entirely nothing like what you find on YouTube and what you find on the Internet all over the place, in particular in chats or debates or Facebook posts or Twitter or wherever you may find people discussing it. Um, you hear people talk about, that's when they put in that pagan idea of the Trinity. And you, you hear all kinds of, of stuff like that. So we're going to look at um, what the background was leading up to the Council of Nicaea, the political background, and we're going to look up 
uh, look at the doctrinal issues that led to it. We're going to look a little bit at what actually took place at the Council of Nicaea and then what the implications are afterwards. So first thing first, we're going to go into the, uh, the background uh, with Roman politics. Keep in mind that the church was under persecution for about 300 years. And we are in the, when we get to the Council of Nicaea, which happens in 325, um, we, the church has experienced both massive persecution in waves. There were communities that thrived and there were communities that were under constant threat. Um, but the church has also really, really begun to grow. Worldwide, the gospel has spread everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. And it is now becoming evident that it has some clout. Um, so that's, that's what's going on in the background. Um, what's important to know is uh, Emperor Diocletian in uh, 303, before we're 20, 20 some year, 22 years before the Council of Nicaea, he is the last great persecutor of the church through the Roman Empire. And he is really, he would be the kind of guy who would say, it's not personal, it's business. Like he's, that, he's a pragmatist, he just wants to get things done, and what he sees in the Christian world and the Christian community is a bunch of upstarts, a bunch of people that make life difficult, because all the normal Romans are worshiping multiple gods, paganism, um, they're worshiping multiple gods. Why can't you guys just get with the program? And they won't get with the program, and Christians are insisting that there is one God, and they're having all these ethics and purity, like, you know, you're not supposed to have sex until you're married, and you're only supposed to marry one woman, and you're only, uh, you're not supposed to commit adultery. There's all these sexual ethics that are making them uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable with the idea of there just being one God. They're uncom- there's a lot that is making the Romans uncomfortable with the message that Christianity has. So Diocletian in AD 303, he starts a new wave um, of persecution. He viewed them as destabilizing to the empire. But he also does this other thing because he is pragmatic, which just simply means how do, how do we make it work? That's what pragmatism is. And he splits the Roman Empire into four separate districts. And the reason that is really important uh, is because it leads to uh, Constantine eventually becoming the emperor of the empire. Um, Constantine's father, uh, Constantius, uh, Constantius Chorus, is granted one of the uh, four divided uh, segments of the empire towards the west, and then out of that, Constantine eventually becomes the emperor. Now, how does that actually happen? Um, There is this battle because the four emperors start fighting with one another for supremacy when Diocletian steps down from his being the uh, supreme emperor in 305, and uh, at 312, there's this specific battle called the, uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. 
And in that battle, uh, Constantine, uh, who's come out underneath of his father and leading the charge as, I'm going to be the guy, I'm going to unite Rome. That's what his kind of message is and what he's trying to do. He brings an army in to Rome, um, which is not something that you were supposed to do, but that's what he did. <clears throat> but there's this battle uh, on a bridge that Maxentius comes out to in the night before the bridge battle, there is this vision that, according to Eusebius, the historian, who, by the way, was a good friend of Constantine, so when you read uh, Eusebius's history, you find very flowery language describing Constantine, um, causing some historians to say, we're not sure entirely uh, where fact and fiction separate from one another with Eusebius, because old school historians were not nearly as concerned uh, with the facts as we might be today. <laughs> so that's something to keep in mind uh, from some of the ancient histories. But uh, he has this vision, and I wanted to read uh, straight from the book exactly what Eusebius records that the vision was. He says, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and an inscription, conquer by this, attached to it. Then in his sleep, the Christ of God appeared to him with the sign which he had seen in the heavens and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens and to use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. So that's what Eusebius records. So supposedly... There is this vision that Constantine has in A.D. 312. So we're still uh, uh, 13 years before um, the uh, Council of uh, Nicaea. And Constantine isn't the emperor yet, but he has this religious experience of some kind. He goes out, he wins the battle, and the result of that win means there are now only two segments to the empire instead of four. And... Uh, the other guy uh, is Licinius. They get together and they do something really important. And if you're not listening, listen to this. What they do is they legalize Christianity through an edict called the Edict of Milan, which was very similar to what we have in America under uh, the First Amendment, which is a freedom of religion. So what they are saying is, all peaceful religions, now religions that want to take over the empire, we're not going to put up with that, but all peaceful religions, including Christianity, are to be tolerated. So what this does is this eliminates the final persecution that was under Diocletian, and by eliminating that final persecution under Diocletian, it allows for the, the church for the very first time in their history, to not be under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Now they have some peace. That happens in 312. And that is not the same thing as Christianity being declared the official religion of Rome. That does not happen until 381. That happens under, and I wrote it down here for you, it happens under Emperor Theo. Theodosius, that's actually in 380, so it's years down the road that that ever happens. And the reason I brought that up is one of the big internet things you read is that Constantine made him the, made him the national religion. And that is not true. All he did 
was sign the Edict of Milan in, uh, in conjunction with Licinius, who was the other side of the empire. They agreed, that's what we're going to do. Now, like Diocletian, Constantine wants peace in the empire, and what he does see, because he is clearly smart and sharp, he sees in Christianity the potential for religious unity. Because Christianity is the fastest growing thing in the empire. So he goes, hmm, this can be used to my benefit in the empire. Um, But there's something else going on, which we're getting into here in a second. Uh, This fast growing religion is filled to the brim with conflict inside of it. And the conflict is not minor. The conflict is over the very nature and the very essence of who Jesus is. So that's what the next bullet point is. A part of our background is understanding the doctrinal conflict that's going on. Now, I could spend 77 weeks right here, okay? Because this stuff, this is what Jen, Jen and I were talking. She's like, I like the battles, which I do too. And I like the, the, uh, the clash of swords and kind of the romance of the stories of battle, which is true. I love that too. But what I really like, which puts me probably in the minority, what I really like is, what were these people thinking? What was the doctrine? What was the theology? What were, what were the heretics saying? Because so much of that trickles into the modern world and you realize it's not new a lot of the stuff that we deal with and that we see, it's just not new. So I'm going to try not to get too in the weeds here on this section, all right? The central issues of strife in the church were the result, should just say the result, of the teachings of Arius. He lived from 250 to 336. He was a presbyter from Alexandria, Egypt, under the bishop of Alexandria, who happened to be named Alexander. That's not your notes, but... He was under Alexander of Alexandria, and in 318, he goes to the bishop of Alexander, or Alexandria, to explain what he saw in Scripture, what he believed uh, the Bible taught about who God was. And what he said is that Jesus was subordinate to the Father, meaning Jesus was was not God. He was less than God. In fact, he was a creation of God. And that maybe sounds like, who would have believed that? Have you ever heard of the Jehovah Witnesses? That is exactly what they believe. They are a continuation of the Arian heresy. In a, in a strange way, um, Mormonism, who, which has, uh, is massively polytheistic, um, is similar in the sense that they lower Jesus. Of course, they lower the Father as well, because there's so many different gods. So they're kind of in a completely different sect and group. But Jehovah Witnesses, they, they literally teach that Uh, Jesus is the Archangel Michael. He is a creation of God. And all things were made through him, but because the Father made 
the Son made him, uh, that's how the Father also has credit ultimately over creation. Anyway, there's a lot of different versions and variations, but this Arius, he was really, really good, really clever, really smart. He had every single scripture you could find uh, that made any distinction, which we as Trinitarians would say is God's way of making distinctions between the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. All We believe in one God, three distinct persons. Um, that, is the, that is the orthodox view of the Trinity. Uh, Arius is just saying, nope, the Son is a creature and he's really important. But, you know, it says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Well, what does that mean? I mean, Jennifer and I got married and we begat Abigail and we begat Hannah and on and on and on. Four times we have four children, that there's a clear moment when there was not Abigail, and then we begat her. So if that's the language of Scripture, then there was a time when there was no Christ, and he was begat by the Father. Do you see his logic? He was really, really smart. And do you know one of the things he did that was super clever? He put all of it to song. He apparently had a real... He was... Here's, here's what, it's not in your notes, but here's what history records. He was good looking and he could sing. These are always dangerous people. That's why, I'm, that's why I keep a really close eye on my wife, because she is good looking and she can sing. Okay, that's my terrible job. That's why I keep her close and make sure everything's okay. But um, what, uh, what Arius was able to do is come up with these catchy little songs and when he comes up with these catchy little songs, it gets stuck in people's heads. And there's actually, in your book, there's a couple, uh, there's a song uh, that he has that we have that come down to us. The uncreated God has made the Son, a beginning of things created, and by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of himself. Yet the Son's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father. Nor does he share the same substance. That this is a song that he wrote about how to teach others his doctrine. Now, this is important to understand because, because his teachings were so anti what the church had been teaching and what the scripture was teaching. Alexander kicks him out of the church in Alexandria and he does what all of us would do in that situation. He writes a book and goes on Oprah, whatever that version of it was then. Uh, he writes a book and he starts gathering other, other people around him um, to discuss uh, what his views are. And there are many people troubled by his teaching because they were struggling to deal with the clever way um, that he would use scripture. If you go to the next page, <clears throat> and I'm getting this straight out of uh, uh, turning points. For Arius, this was the only logical choice, making the son less than the father, because, and this is a quote from 
Arius exactly. If the Father begat the Son, he, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Hence it is clear that there was when the Son was not. It follows then of necessity that he had his existence from the non-existent. And I put there in red. Notice he didn't use the phrase, a time when the Son was not. Look how awkwardly clever it is what he actually says. Hence it is clear that there was when the Son was not. He didn't say there was a time when the Son was not. Your brain wants to put that word in there. I don't know if you noticed that. Your brain wants to stick that word in there, but he's very careful, and this is something about the precision of theologians. He's careful not to use the word time because he believed Jesus was created before time. And he wanted to make it clear how important Jesus was. See, this is how heresies work. They do everything they can to exalt the thing that we love and cherish, which is the Son of the living God, who is God, in the flesh, Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to trample on any of the warmth and devotion that you have for Jesus. He just wants you to cease believing in God. So he can't just come out with fangs. He's got to say, oh, no, 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 Jesus, very... Very special, very important. Unbelievable, way more important than humanity. But he's a creation. And he was created before time. And that's why he says it this way. There was, a, there was when the sun was not. Anyway, I just found that totally fascinating that that is the way that he did it. So cleverness is uh, always part and parcel to various heresies that, the churches encountered. Um, next point, Arius was very skilled in twisting Scripture to fit his logic. John fourteen twenty eight, where Jesus mentions that the Father is greater than I. Of course, that's a reference in his humanity. And in that moment, Romans eight twenty nine, Colossians 1, 15, these were Scriptures he used frequently to minimize the Son's role in redemption and to minimize his importance. Now, Athanasius and mentioning him, because he's actually important after the Council of Nicaea, he's not a bishop at this point. Um, he's actually uh, um, a presbyter. He's later going to be exiled five times in his defense of the divinity of Jesus. And he is a major force, and I'm just mentioning him here, um, so that because there were people trying to push back against the Arian heresy. And Athanasius was ultimately recognized as the most effective in the pushback against it uh, later on. Ken? Mm-hmm. So, what happens is, and this is, I don't want to get too tangled with all this. So what happens is, even though the Council of Nicaea happens, and spoiler alert, uh, there is a rejection of Arius at, at AD 325. There's a vote on what, the, what we're going to accept as a creedal statement defining the divinity and the deity of Christ. Um, 
and uh, Arius is totally, totally rejected in AD 325. But there's a couple years go by, there's other emperors, and the teachings of Arius had other disciples, and it doesn't go away. In fact, they are going to fight with this heresy for the next several hundred years. Ultimately, you could say that the Arian heresy never goes away. It has actually never left. Um, Athanasius, the reason he is ostrac- or he's uh, kicked out five times is because in the next several decades, there's these periods of time where it looks like the Arian heresy modified repackaged, is going to win the day. And Athanasius actually, uh, on his tombstone, if, I don't, if I'm not misremembering this, it says Athanasius against the world. He stood when everybody else was saying, this has got to be the right way. So he, he's, that's why I put him in here. He's one of my favorites. Um, he was a powerful voice and he stood on the truth of Scripture that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So Athanasius, um, I'm using him here to just give you the vibe um, before the Council of Nicaea, that there was this back and forth in the church world. There was a lot of other stuff going on. There were debates over the Trinity. There was modalism. In fact, our little Trinity thing back here actually has a list of the different Heresies are poster back here. There was modalism, which says, now this always upsets people. Modalism is whenever you say, well, the Trinity is like water, ice, and steam. There is a mode of water that is ice, and a mode of water that is steam, and a mode of water that is liquid, but it's all water, and that's the Trinity. Nope, that's heresy. That is modalism. That is that, that denies the distinction of the Son. It denies the distinction of the Holy Spirit. It denies the distinction of the Father as three separate divine persons who are and share the being of God. Um, so modalism was going on in the eastern part of the church uh, leading up to the Council of Nicaea. There's lots of fights over that. There's lots of debates over that. Um, in fact, because of those debates, and there was something called Sabellianism, which he mentions in here, um, and which was modalism, the, those debates that were going on made people uncomfortable with the language that ultimately gets used at the Council of Nicaea, and it actually was Athanasius that kind of helped win the day after uh, the Council of Nicaea to make the whole church world comfortable with the idea of something... We haven't talked about yet, so I'm going to get there. So I'll get back to that. Um, I, give you a, I gave you a quote here from C.S. Lewis. You can read that. Um, where What C.S. Lewis is basically saying here, well, I'll read it. He stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible, synthetic religions which then as now included among their devotees many highly cultivated clergymen. The reason he's saying that it seems sensible is that what Arius was doing was applying logic. He was saying, if God begat the Son, 
logically, it must be concluded that the Son is less than the Father. And so what the Council of Nicaea does, and one of the reasons it is is so important, is that it doesn't defy logic because God, the reason logic is a thing is because of God, but it teaches us that Scripture does not rely on a human logic. We have to rely on the whole counsel of Scripture, which is not, that's not to say that it's illogical. The Trinity is not illogical. The divinity of the Son is not illogical. It's just that we don't have a category to describe God adequately, <clears throat> totally and completely, and describing Him the way Scripture describes Him leaves us with the Trinity. Because Jesus is described as Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is described as Yahweh, the Father is described as Yahweh, and yet the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and neither of Father or the Son are the Holy Spirit. They are three uniquely distinct persons of Yahweh. One God. So, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying to uphold what the Bible teaches flies in the face of sensible religions. This is why, and I'm going to maybe sound a little funny here, but this is why it is not always best to say, let's just keep it simple. I understand what you mean by that. And it's true, we need simplicity of Christ. Paul's warned against turning Christ into something else. However, I cannot read the Bible and walk away and say, well, that's the most simple thing I've ever read. You cannot read it that way. Peter read Paul and said, uh, he wrote some hard things to understand. Peter, who lived with Jesus for three years, reads an apostle writing about Jesus and his work and comes away from it saying, I'm not even sure I get what he's saying, but it's coming from God. So, and I'll quote John Piper in this. He says, why does God put passages in the Bible like Romans chapter 7 that the good that I will to do, I don't want to do, but I want to do, but I will. You've all read those sections. You're like, what is he saying? Why does he want uneducated slaves in Rome to read that? Sounds like he's writing for the, um, the elite noblemen and the edu- That is not. He expects us to use our brain and trust the Holy Spirit and use our brain and ask questions and trust the Holy Spirit. That is what God expects of us. So, that is my little soapbox that we, in our desire to make everything uh, third grade, we can get duped by Arius-type thinking. Well, logically and simplistically, it must be this. So it's, it's, it's dangerous to follow that train of thinking. Now, if we are taking Scripture and building a case and saying, because of this and because of this, because of this, because of what the Scripture says, then this is what it means, then that's different. That's called exegesis. What Arius is doing is not exegesis. Arius is saying, 
logically, if there is a father and a son, the father is greater than the son because the father creates the son. And logically, that must mean that he's the supreme God and Jesus is a lesser. So that is the, that is the sensible thing to conclude. And then twist all the scripture to make it fit with that. Okay. I'm doing what I said I was going to try not to do. Okay. The council itself. It actually happened in AD 325. If you remember any dates, this is a good one to remember. Nicaea happened in AD 325. It was from June 14th through July 25th. So we're right in the middle of the, what, uh, 1700 years? Is that how many years ago that was? Uh, uh, 1,700 or 1,800 years ago this week, we are right in the middle of how long this council was. Um, The council was, so remember we talked about the background of Rome and Constantine's now emperor. Constantine is now in charge of the empire, and he recognizes that there is a great potential to use the church He's already in A.D. 312 signed the Edict of Milan, so everybody is at peace at this point. They're not throwing Christians to the lions any longer. So now he sees inside that... And by the way, Constantine is a convert because of what happened to him in A.D. 312. He doesn't get baptized until 337. That is a completely... Because they had this belief that baptism, you shouldn't sin after you baptized. So they waited until you were elderly to baptize. It's really this interesting thing. Like, and then what if you screw it up after that? I, I, they had some... Anyway, they put it off as long as they could, but then what happens if you die in your sleep? So there was like... I, there, it was, that's a completely different, interesting thing. Uh, but uh, Constantine is recognizing as a believer, but also as a politician, he doesn't cease being that. Here's my opportunity to unify this fragmented empire that I took over by war and I'm reuniting Rome and I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make peace. So he calls for a church council. This is not the first time the church has met. The church dating back to Acts 15 has had church councils to try to figure out what do we do with this? How do we, how do we deal with this? How do we understand what's in front of us? The difference now is, is the emperor is calling for it. So all over the empire, tradition says 318 bishops show up, which represents about a third of all the church bishops in the world at that time. And he pays for it. He pays for the travel. He pays for the lodging. He pays for the food. This is a state-sponsored church council. Now, do you see why conspiracy theories happen? I don't even need to say anything else. This is how Nicaea gets turned into something that it isn't. But what Constantine is doing is he's basically saying, everybody come to Nicaea, I'll pay for your hotel, I'll pay for your airplane ticket, and I will pay for your food. I need you guys to hash this thing out with Arius and figure it out Because the empire needs stability. So you guys need to get together and come to a conclusion. That is what's happening at the Council of Nicaea. Um, (laughs) 
there are many debates to this day about what his actual involvement was. He's not a theologian. These guys, Athanasius, Arius, you read their writings, you will recognize in 30 seconds that you needed more schooling or that you needed to pay attention more closely in English grammar and history class because these guys' brains, they were just sharp. Now, granted, these weren't, uh, this is all they did. They were theologians, but these guys were sharp people. Constantine was smart and he was savvy and he was shrewd and he was a politician, but he was not a theologian. So he gets them together. I love that tradition also states that he presided over the assembly with golden robes. I just think that's great that uh, he's definitely making uh, the pomp and circumstances part of it. His political goal used the church's growing influence to create religious unity in the empire and the theological goal define the nature of Christ, thereby solidify an understanding of the Trinity. Now, this is not, these councils do not determine what the Bible says. These councils are trying to come to an agreement on what the Bible is actually already teaching. There is a difference. It's not that the council says this is what the Bible is saying. The council is trying to come to some kind of unified belief as a church as to what is this actually teaching in light of the fact that we've got this uh, live wire over here, Arius, that's creating so many problems and so many people like what he's saying. I didn't mention this, uh, but I'm listening to a podcast on church history, and uh, when they're discussing this, they say that you could not go to the fish market or buy shoes and not hear people discussing the nature of, the, of Christ. It was everywhere across the empire. So this, this was a big deal. This wasn't just the church and Christianity. It was really starting to roll through communities as the Holy Spirit was adding to their numbers daily, to quote Acts. Uh, they, the church was really, really humming through the empire. And that's one of the reasons Constantine wanted a council and wanted them to get on the same page because the last thing he needs is for there to be a split in the church or some kind of explosion when he's just now got the four corners back together of the empire. So that's, that's what's going on. Uh, the council itself, it does result in the condemnation of Arius and his views, but the Arian heresy, can this kind of answer to your question, The Arian heresy would require more work from theologians in the church for centuries. In fact, Arianism is still an issue today. And I mentioned Jehovah Witnesses and other cults that that detract from the deity of Christ. There's four major assertions, uh, according to Noel, that the, the Council of Nicaea makes. Number one, Christ was true God from true God. Jesus himself was God in the same sense that the Father was God. Different, 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 I know how to say it in my head. Differentiation between father and son may refer to the respective tasks each took on or to the relationship in which each stands to the other. But the key matter is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all truly God. Christ was consubstantial 
I know, now listen, don't get lost in this, but this is where the crux of the Council of Nicaea was, what they were arguing over, and I mentioned earlier the western part of the church, the eastern part of the church, the, the eastern part dealing with modalism, Sabellianism, the idea of God in different modes and substances. They had struggles with what you're about to read. Christ was consubstantial, which means of one substance with the Father. The Greek word used in this phrase, homoousis, homo from homo, which means same, and usis, or usia, which means substance, that led to great controversy, both because this technical philosophical term is not found in the Bible, and because a large faction in the church preferred the assertion that Jesus was of a similar substance with the Father. Using the key word homoousis, from homoi, similar, and usia, which is this uh, substance. Later writers refer dramatically to the importance of distinguishing I or iota, the smallest Greek letter. You notice between the two words, there's only one letter difference, and it's an I, the iota. In the end, homoosis won out because it reinforced as unequivocally as possible the fact that Christ was truly very God of very God. The term was held to be a just summary of Jesus' own teaching that I and the Father are one from John 10, 30. This this phrase, these Greek words, super duper important. This is what they really, 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 really argued over. Because think about the difference in what they're saying. Is Jesus God the same substance as God, I mean, whatever the substance of God is, spirit, whatever you, is he the same or is he something similar? You, there's a gigantic difference between those two things. Well, Jesus, Arius is saying, well, he's something, he's something different, he's something less. And Orthodox Christianity is saying, no, he is God in the flesh of the same substance. That's where they get truly God, or very God of very God. That's what that means. Jesus is God, the same way the Father is God, the same way, and they didn't fight over this at Council of Nicaea, that's coming later, the Holy Spirit is God. At Nicaea, Jesus was center stage in who he was. Third thing, Christ was begotten, not made. That is, Jesus was never formed, as all other things and persons had been created, but was from eternity the Son of God. And some of the phraseology that gets used is eternally begotten of the Father. Meaning, He has always been in the role of the Son from eternity. He has never not been the Son. There was never a a millisecond of the Father independent of His own, and the Son then shows up later. Always, God has existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that uh, that was part of what they affirmed uh, in that third point. And then four, Christ became human for us as humans and for our salvation. This phrase succinctly summarized the burden of Athanasius' concern that Christ could not have brought salvation to his people if Christ were only a creature. Humanity could not pull itself up to God, 
salvation was of God. So, in other words, Athanasius, countering the logic of Arius, said, if Jesus is a creature, he can't save us. Because we too are creatures. We need, a, we need God to save us. And God did save us by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He, he is God. We just, you see, so I know sometimes when you talk about it, you think, you know what, I already knew this. My seven-year-old knows this because we've taught her that. But what we've done is, is like a lot of things, we take for granted that people had to fight and figure out what does the Scripture actually say? Because there are things that Paul wrote which are hard to understand. And Peter himself wrote things. And James and John and Jesus said things that church history they have hashed out and fought over. And that is why doctrinal controversies are not a bad thing necessarily. Now, if it's the kind of thing that destroys um, families and relationships over minor issues, that's not a good thing. But doctrinal conflicts over the nature of who God is are not bad because they provide opportunity to clarify what does the Scripture actually teach. And this is the watershed moment in church history. That's why he listed as a turning point where the church came together against an attack on what the Scripture said and it gave them the opportunity to really clarify exactly who Jesus Christ is according to Scripture. The council is not being told by Constantine to make Jesus a deity. That is not what is happening. It is not Constantine's way of introducing pagan Trinitarian stuff into the church. There were, there were already conversations and arguments uh, for the Trinity before the Council of Nicaea. That, that isn't what happened. What happened was, let's have peace in this empire by having peace in this religion, but we've got to figure out clearly what is being taught in Scripture. So, let me conclude. The Nicene Creed still stands today, 17 centuries later, as a foundation for worship, theology, and prayer. The importance of defining exactly who Christ is and what he accomplished was incredibly important. The empire that persecuted the church, you don't lose sight of this, now supports it. This is a radical change. In fact, and this isn't one of the turning points, but I've got to mention something that I found fascinating there is an overlap in this period of time where, let's take Ken. Ken, you are, what, 42? How old are you? Ken is 70 years old. Ken, let's say, was born uh, in 270. So he's a 30-year-old man in 300 A.D., 
and he grows up in a section of Rome that is persecuting Christians, Ken watches them kill his wife, and Ken is burnt uh, all over his body or imprisoned. Um, He's missing an eye where they've gouged it out, and they've broken bones in his body in torture and imprisonment and persecution. And then all this stuff happens with the Edict of Milan, and Ken now in his 40s is let loose, and by the time the Council of Nicaea comes, and they get this stuff hashed out by AD 330, Ken is uh, 60 now, and he's in a church as a living example of somebody who was persecuted, now living on the other side of the Council of Nicaea and really the Edict of Milan in AD 312, where the tolerance for Christianity has happened. What do you, how do you think we would all look at Ken? With reverence, reverential awe? That's what was happening in the church. But guess what else was happening in the church? Steve, five years uh, younger than Ken, I'm the one that told him where Ken lived so that I could go free and my family would be safe. The reason Ken's wife is dead and his children are dead is because I gave Ken up. But now I have repented in the peaceful time and have come back into the church. Have you ever thought about what that would been, had been like? Because that kind of thing was happening all over the place. That's just, that is something if you want to study more on, that is definitely something worth looking at. Um, but there were, there was a lot of the church in these days were trying to figure out what do we do about people who renounce their faith that are now trying to come back in. And how does Ken deal with the resentment? <laughs> I think we understand that feeling. How would he deal with that? Uh, I don't think Ken would be real thrilled to go to the uh, Beach Fork Lake Church picnic uh, and uh, share a bowl of macaroni with, uh, with me after that it's it's uh it's definitely but that was something that happened and and there's a whole there's a lot of information there okay it's not in your notes so the church is now being supported the church is now accepted and in about 50 years it's going to become the official religion but it's not yet so what are some turning points that come out of that? Some things that happen. Anathema could now be pronounced by the state. That's, that's going to be a development that starts to take place. Anathema is, we are kicking you out. You are a heretic. But now it's not just the church saying it, the power of the state is with it. That's something that we're going to see. Arians loved this idea, by the way, because logically... The father was over top the son, and in the same way, the state should really rule over the church. That the, these things kind of went hand in hand. A- Arians did not win the day, so there was more freedom. Um, but that doesn't mean that later on, which we will get to some of these issues, so that first one, we'll, we'll learn more about that later. Emperors could be held accountable to bishops. This is a this is a result of what happened. 
uh, because now the church is becoming, uh, it's accepted by the state and it's on its way to becoming the official religion, though it didn't happen here. So there are bishops in later centuries that are literally begging in the snow barefoot because the Pope made them beg outside the door, made them, made the emperors beg for forgiveness. Because the popes, which is a later development, there was no pope, by the way, at the Council of Nicaea, the Roman bishop doesn't even show up. He sends two presbyters to the Council of Nicaea. Just to give you that little tidbit, there wasn't a, there wasn't a pope as we understand it today uh, at the Council of Nicaea. But uh, later on in church history, later on, about in 80,000, uh, the popes are strong because they can say, guess what, in your little town, in uh, your little area, your little country, I'm instructing all the priests, that, uh, I think it was called, um, and I don't want to mispronounce it, but there was a word that they used uh, that we're just going to say no marriages, no baptisms, n- nothing for you for your country until your king comes and kisses the ring. And that is power, if there has ever been power. So we'll get to some of that um, a little bit later on. But this, the turning point is now that the church and the state are cozy, it opens up doors. It doesn't happen immediately. And I'm telling you, Athanasius... And some of the other bishops of Alexandria, that I, this is not what was in their mind, that there would be a day like that coming. But the, the seeds are planted for that. Political pressure could be uh, more easily inf- uh, could more easily influence both church and state. Also, the church could flourish without the pressure of persecution. Um, this is a, a quote from uh, the book, Because the Work of the Son was homoousis with the father with the work of the father the life of the church the life of the church had an independence that no instrument of state could transgress this foundation was critical for later relationships between state and church especially in the west so there is also embedded in nicaea it's like a two-edged sword it plants the seed for the church and the state to be mingled together, but it also established the idea that the church should be free from the influence of the state. It establishes the idea that is really what we have in America. They, the founding fathers didn't come up with this idea out of thin air, uh, of, the, uh, of the idea of an independent church from the state. <clears throat> of course, they probably had more in mind what Nicaea had, which was uh, the church should be able to speak to the state and say, you're sinners, you're wrong, this law is unjust, this is mistreatment of people. That, that is the kind of thing the church is historic, like issues of abortion, issues uh, dealing with sexual ethics, dealing with ethics, period. Um, those are all things that uh, the church historically did speak to the state. Um, and I wrote here, finally, the seeds of sacralism are however planted. Sacralism is when the church and the state are one, kind of like what you see in Muslim countries, uh, and like you do see later on in some areas uh, in Europe. And the increasing mingling of empire and church is coming. 
in other lessons. So I will read something from page 55 of the book. In these terms, Nicaea was a turning point that set Christianity on a course that it has only begun to relinquish, and that, o- and that only reluctantly over the past two or three centuries. That course was the addition of concerns for worldly power to its birthright concern for the worship of God. The complexity of the Nicene situation makes it very difficult to pronounce snap judgments on this great turning point. At the initiation of the emperor, the church reaffirmed the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, which has proved to be an immensely significant foundation for virtually all Christian life, work, and worship in the centuries that followed. Yet because of the emperor's actions, the sphere of worldly concerns he stood for gradually assumed greater and greater importance in the church. The distinction between church and world that Nicene Christology preserved was in fact compromised by the very events that led up to the declaration of Nicaea. So, we are going to stop there. I do have in your notes the the creed that came out, the Nicene Creed that came out. Um, You can see that the First Council of Nicaea in 325... Later, the First Council of Constantinople in 381 kind of revamped the 325 Nicene Creed. And in particular, it's that last paragraph. Because if you look at the bottom of the First Council of Nicaea, all it says is, and in the Holy Ghost. Well then, because their main controversy was over Jesus. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, we get to have another controversy over that. And that is why, uh, just 50 years later, um, 55 years later, uh, the Council of Constantinople, they, they kind of dug back in and revamped the Nicene Creed, and they give a whole section to the Holy Spirit. Um, so I just thought it would be helpful for you to have this. I think the creeds are incredibly helpful. They're important. Uh, we talked about them last time, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed and the, especially the First Council of Constantinople, the, that updated Nicene Creed, there is not a syllable in there that um, many, 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 many Christians would be able to agree with um, and should be able to agree with. And you'd really have to question what, what is it about these especially the Nicene Creed dealing with who Jesus is and uh, uh, the Holy Spirit and the Father, so the Trinitarian uh, understanding, you would have to ask people where their problem with it is.